Well, several weeks ago, my wife and I decided that we would spend Valentine's weekend, um, we spent the whole weekend celebrating Valentine's Day, um, down in San Francisco in a hotel room. Uh, I had to come back on Saturday and then back on Sunday, but it was three nights, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday down in San Francisco, about two blocks away from Fisherman's Wharf. And we enjoyed a beautiful time of rain, rain, and more rain with all of us, me, my wife, and three kids crammed into one hotel room. Sounds romantic, doesn't it? Whew, it was a good time. Well, uh, despite the fact that there were five of us crammed in a hotel room while it was raining outside buckets, um, we had great memories and a a really good time. But as you can imagine, we we watched a lot of movies and we watched Madagascar 2. And and, uh, in the process of uh, flipping through the channels, I came on this religious station. It was a a Christian station. And um, and I listened to a minister give uh, a a message, a pastor, a well-known pastor. And there were thousands of people there listening to him. And I don't get a chance to, to listen to other ministers all that often. I can listen to them on podcast or on the on the web, but I don't get to go listen to them. So I listened, and I listened intently and all the way through from start to finish. And, and he spoke with um, with confidence. He was very polished, far more polished than I will ever be. And he was funny and very engaging. But by the time he wrapped up his message, and when he said amen at the final prayer, my heart sunk, if I was to be perfectly honest with you. And my heart sunk for one solitary reason, and that is his message never brought me to the cross, and it never brought me to Jesus. And that's what I hunger the most for, and that's what, for me personally, satisfies my soul more than anything is to hear about Christ, the resurrection, the glorified one. That's that's food for my soul. And so I, I walked away from that. I didn't walk away. I turned it off, just saddened. My wife and I, and I talked about it is that you could kind of take that message, you could wring it out like a, like a washcloth, and, and you wouldn't even get a drip of Jesus or a drip of the cross. All you would get is nothing more than kind of a boiled-down conventional human wisdom as to how to live life. The essence of the message was how to live at peace with yourself and not allow the expectations of others to control you. A very popular topic, but there was no Jesus in it. And I found at the end, I just was saddened by the fact he never brought me to the cross, never brought me to Jesus. Now you might ask, well, Dan, is it really all that important in Christian messages or teaching or preaching or in even talking to another person about Jesus? Is it really important to talk about the cross? To which I think I would have to say, yes, if it is to be distinctly Christian preaching or teaching, it must connect somehow to Jesus in, in, in the cross. Um, um, that's not to say that every message has to be an evangelistic message. That's not to say that the name of Jesus has to be said in every sentence or in every paragraph. But it has been believed for centuries that the central subject of the Bible is Jesus, that he is the centerpiece of, of the revelation of God. He's the centerpiece of biblical history, of biblical theology, and of redemption itself. That is, he is the centerpiece of the Bible. He is not simply one figure amongst equals, as if it was Moses and David and Isaiah and Jesus and Paul and Peter. No, all of those either point to or explain the center of the Bible, which is Jesus, the cross, and the resurrection. So for preaching or messages to not connect in some way to the centerpiece of the Bible, Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, is to me like like holding a presidential inauguration and not inviting the new president. That's the whole purpose in gathering together at an inauguration is is to celebrate what the new president is going to do. Or it's like inviting your best friend to a birthday party and having the cake and having cards and presents and not inviting your best friend. The whole purpose for the birthday party is the birthday person. That's a message, a sermon, preaching, or 
small group without Jesus and the cross and the resurrection is missing the center. And it ends up boiling down to nothing more than conventional human wisdom. So, uh, yes, I think the answer would have to be, if it is to be distinctly Christian, then Christ must be the center of it and the cross and the resurrection. And what what kind of um, saddens me, or saddened me as I watched the television, not only was that it was a Christless and crossless message, never brought me to Christ or the cross. And by the way, this is not in any way, shape, or form saying that I can do this perfectly because I don't. And there are messages I look back on and thinking, oh, why didn't I connect it to Jesus more? But it is to recognize that that is the centerpiece. But what saddened me was that there were thousands of people lapping this stuff up. Laughing up the Christless, crossless message. And I found myself asking, why? I mean, people are holding the Bibles in their hands, but there's relatively little Scripture in it. There's no Jesus, no cross. Why is it so many people are gravitating to this kind of message? And, and I know there are probably a number of different answers to that particular question. One, of course, might be that, that people tend to gravitate towards messages that make them feel good about themselves. I mean, who doesn't like to feel good about themselves until so you walk out feeling positive? I mean... But if there's no Christ in it or no cross in it, then it seems to me that what you're feeding yourself with is something like cheese puffs. You know, I love cheese puffs, but they're mostly air and they don't do anything for you. They feel good going down, but it doesn't change you at all. It certainly isn't healthy for you to eat cheese puffs. But when you have a nice big salad and you have a piece of steak, I'm a red meat kind of guy, and potatoes, well, then you're satisfied. And for me to be satisfied, there has to be cross and Jesus in it, which means I'm probably not necessarily going to feel good about myself because the cross is where sin was dealt with. The cross is exposes sin, and that's, that's hard for people. So maybe it's because people want something more positive, want to feel good about themselves. Maybe another reason is because we've actually lost confidence. We never say this, but we've lost confidence in the profound power of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And we've lost confidence that the message is the power. Now, we never say that, but it's our practice that betrays our true and real faith, how, how we live. So maybe that's part of it. We just lost confidence that it really works. And so we go clamoring to other kinds of things. Or maybe we think mistakenly that the cross and the resurrection, the crucifixion of Jesus and his life, Maybe we think that that's just the starting point of the Christian life. You know, and then after the cross, we need to go on and get more, something meatier, something deeper. And what we end up doing is, is looking for something beyond, maybe the hidden key to spiritual success that's not found in the cross. And what we end up doing is inadvertently leaving behind the cross and seeking after some form of conventional human wisdom to, to help us grow. And in leaving behind the cross and the centrality of Jesus, in essence, we leave behind the true and real power source and real wisdom of God. Jesus is the basis of Christian preaching and He's the purpose of Christian preaching. And the people here in Corinth, our brothers and sisters in the first century, were in, not only were they man-focused, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas, and dividing themselves and chanting the names of their heroes, but they were in danger of leaving behind the cross, the centrality of the cross, for the sake of something better, for the sake of human wisdom. 
I mean, they were Greeks for crying out loud. They, they loved philosophy. You know, and anybody who knows anything about Greece knows that that's what they loved. They loved philosophy. They had hundreds of different schools of philosophy from the Stoics to the Epicureans to the Sophists, on and on and on. They loved wisdom. And part of the problem for them in their time was the cross, the idea of a, of a deliverer being crucified was at best embarrassing and at worst idiotic. So it didn't fit with what was respectable. And so they were in danger of, of wanting something beyond the cross and perhaps the cross was a bit embarrassed. And Paul, in these words right here in 1 Corinthians, brings it right back to the center, brings them right back and says, it's right here at the cross. You're not going to find anything out there that's not already been given to you right here. That it is the cross and the teaching of the cross. This Christ-centered cross-resurrection message. And then he's going to tell us why it's important to keep that central. This is what he says. I start in verse 17, but it's actually in the middle of a paragraph. It's a transitional verse from one idea to another, and so I kind of need to include it. But it doesn't make sense if I start there. So let's start in verse 13. This is after they've said, I am of Paul, I am of Paulus. There's a division. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Christmas, Gaius, and so forth. And then he goes on in verse 17 to say, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That was his purpose, is to preach the good news The center's on the cross and the resurrection, but here's what he says. Not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. That's a pretty amazing statement. He says that his goal is to preach, that his aim, that is what God's call in his life was, to preach about Christ and the cross. Not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He's saying that there is a way of presenting the truth about Jesus and his death and his resurrection that actually undermines the power of it. It empties it of its intrinsic innate power. And what empties it, well, you've got to stop for a second and just think, to empty the cross of its power. The cross is what God used to unleash new and eternal life. Life forever and ever. That's how powerful it is. It is the wellspring and the beginning of a new heavens and a new earth. That is, through the cross, God unleashes His redemption on all the universe. That's how powerful it is. And Paul is saying that there is a way of presenting, a way of speaking or preaching or teaching about the cross and Jesus It empties it of its power, and I'm not going to do that. And what empties it of of power, he says, is to speak with words of human wisdom. It's a manner of speaking, and I think it has two ideas in it. One is the idea of making the gospel, which is centered on a crucified man, respectable in the various philosophies of Greece. That is to redraft it, recast it, to adapt it so that now it becomes respectable as the Stoics were respected and the Epicureans and so forth. The problem is, is to make it respectable to speak with human wisdom and human logic and human reasoning to make it attractive to the culture, you have to minimize the cross. You have to because it's, to them it's foolishness, it's idiocy. 
the idea of a crucified man, the crucified deliverer. So in order to make it respectable and wise, one has to diminish the importance of the cross, and Paul's not willing to do that. No, I'm going to keep the cross central, even though it seems foolish to people. So that's one idea, is to try and readapt the truth to make it acceptable to culture, respectable to culture. The second part of what I think empties the cross of this power is the way in which it's presented. That is, Paul is basically saying, I am not going to resort to using the rhetorical tricks that the Greeks love to use to persuade people to believe their ideas. That is, in ancient Greece, this time and long before this time, the art of rhetoric or persuading people with speech and logic and, and oratory and eloquence, it was considered one of the highest arts of the culture. And Paul's saying, listen up, and which was oftentimes, by the way, manipulative. So I'm not going to resort to using the kind of verbal tricks to try and convince people and manipulate people into accepting my message. It depletes the innate and intrinsic power of the message of the cross itself. So it's that kind of thing. It's kind of recasting it in something that's respectable, the, the, the gospel, which has to minimize the cross, or the way in which it's presented, and the way it's, which it's presented, resorting to manipulative, persuasive arguments and eloquence to try and get people to believe. That kind of approach empties the innate and intrinsic power of the cross, is what he's saying. I'm not going to do that, Paul says. And the fact of the matter is, those same mistakes that empty the cross of its intrinsic power happen today. There is a growing movement in modern Christianity. It goes by various names, but it's blown primarily by the winds of postmodernism. Some of us are becoming more aware of that particular term, and many of us don't understand fully what it means. Nevertheless, there's this growing movement within Christianity that wants to be relative, relevant, and redraft and recraft, cast the gospel in such a way that it becomes palatable and respectable in the culture, which requires them to minimize or to de-emphasize the cross. I say that because when you talk about the cross, you talk about everything that the cross entails, like sin. If there is no sin, there's no reason for a cross. So when you talk about cross, you talk about sin, and people don't want to talk about that today. When you talk about the cross, you're talking about judgment. You're talking about God pouring out His wrath on His Son. We don't like judgment, so then we diminish the cross. We diminish the idea of judgment. So there is this swelling movement that wants to, to underplay the cross and make ourselves more respectable so that we might win people. It's really no different than what, the, what, what, what Paul is saying here. It empties the cross of its power. You don't have to make it respectable, not at the expense of the cross anyway. The cross is always going to offend people because it always brings up the fact that he died because you sinned. He was judged because you should have been judged, but he was judged instead. It's always going to be a bit offensive. We make the second mistake oftentimes when we think, man, if my mother or dad who doesn't believe or my friend, if they would only come and hear this really good Christian speaker... You know, he's articulate, he's smart, he's got three PhDs from Cambridge and Oxford and from USC. He is eloquent, he's funny, engaging. If I can get my unbelieving friend just to come and sit and listen to him, I'm sure he or she will believe. And what that ends up boiling down to is oratory. In the end, we're depending upon the device of communication, 
to convert a person's soul. And Paul wasn't willing to do that. That's why here he says, I have come to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom. I'm not going to try and use manipulative tricks. And I'm not going to redraft the truth to minimize the cross. Human wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. He basically says, I take the straightforward and simple approach of declaring Christ crucified and risen. Straightforward. This is how it is. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul wasn't, wasn't committed to being clear or passionate. But it does mean that Paul didn't want a person's faith, a person's belief, a person's response to be based on humans, on human argumentation. He wanted their faith to be based on the intrinsic power of the cross and the message about the cross of Jesus. It's not, the power is not in the messenger. It's not in me. Certainly is not in me. The power is in the message about what Jesus did. That's where the power is. So he says, I just set it out there. Straightforward, simple, without trying to prop it up with wisdom, try to prop it up with these winsome um, uh, words of, of eloquence. And then he goes on after that to give three reasons why he just commits himself to a Christ-centered, cross-centered, simple straightforward message three reasons why the first one found in 18 verse 18 where he says this he says um, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of god it boils down to this paul basically says listen this is my my message is simple it's straightforward it's about the cross it's about jesus and the reason i keep it that way is because some are going to get it and some aren't some are going to think it's downright foolish they're going to reject it and we've heard this before why do you believe that why do you believe that stuff? Some aren't just going to reject it. Some are going to think it's idiotic. Think it's stupid. Think it's foolish. And I've heard that before. But on the other hand, Paul says, but, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So some are going to get it and some aren't. Some are going to think it's just downright absurd, this whole Christianity and cross thing. And, but, to, but to those who are being saved, it... We experience the power of it to change life and to forgive us and to justify and set us free. And, it, and we consider, continue to experience its change in our lives day by day, week by week. It is, it's God's power to us, but foolish to other people. In other words, only some people are going to get it. Others are going to think it's foolish. An idea being that Paul's no amount of rhetorical device or, or trying to prop it up with human wisdom and, and so forth is, is, is going to do it because some are going to get it and some aren't. So you just put it out there straightforward. And that, that, of course, to me is a, is a real relief. Uh, some of us are under the misguided um, notion that in order to bring someone to faith in Christ, we have to dismantle the entire system of evolution or that we have to dismantle um, uh, atheistic views or that we have to somehow prove why God exists. That is, we have to somehow convince people based on rational arguments that God exists, therefore maybe they'll be saved as a result of us dismantling this wrong thinking. That's not what's going to save anybody because the power is not found there. For Paul, it's found in the power of the cross. It's, it has an innate power to it that brings people to life say, oh yeah, that, that is true. Chapter 2 actually tells how that happens, um, which we're not talking about tonight. But it is somewhat freeing to know that 
you know, God has called us to spread a passion for the supremacy of Jesus through the ministry of the Word, which is a word about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus and the supremacy of Jesus. Some are going to get it, some aren't. Our responsibility is to deliver it as best as we can. And it's not going to be, in the end, how well you explained it or how eloquent you were that's going to bring them to faith. The power is not found in the way you communicate. It's found in what you communicate, and what you communicate should be the cross and the resurrection. That's where the power is found. So first reason why Paul says, hey, I just straightforward and simple, it's about the cross. Like Jesus died for us and rose again. It's because some are going to get it, some aren't. Some are going to think it's foolish, but others are going to experience his power. Reason number two, found in verses 19 and following, he says, for, this is the, that word force signifies second reason. For, he says, it is written, I will destroy, he's quoting um, Isaiah here, and this is the voice of God, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where's the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, in other words, as much as they thought, thought, and philosophized, and thought, and thought, they didn't know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand a miraculous sign. Those are signs of power. And Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. In essence, what it boils down to here is that God chose the cross, and hence Paul preaches the cross, because in the cross, God lays waste to human wisdom through the foolishness of a man crucified. He lays waste to human wisdom through the foolishness of a man crucified. I mean, he's citing Isaiah here where God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the intelligence, of the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. God isn't simply going to, and in the process of destroying man's wisdom, overturning it, stripping it bare, showing it to be nothing but mere human drivel, but he actually, it actually says that God was pleased to do this. God was pleased to capture his, his, his creation, which has fallen in death and sin. He chose to recapture it through the foolishness of a man dying on the cross so that he might frustrate human wisdom, destroy human wisdom, turn it over, upset it, strip it bare, embarrass it. That's what God was pleased to do. He did so because, and it was, it was, foolish because it defied all rational expectations of wisdom and all religious expectations of the Jews. It blew every cat. When Jesus came, born in a manger, suffered and died on a cross, it blew everybody's category. It seemed like pure foolishness and pure offense. I mean, the Greeks were hungry for wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom was their God. The acquisition of human knowledge and the systematization of that knowledge. That was their God. 
And the idea of a man brutally beaten and dying on a tree did not fit their conceptions of what God would be like. But God doesn't fit human conception, does He? So they thought it's completely absurd. The Jews, however, worshipped power. They wanted signs of power. They expected the Messiah, their deliverer, to come with splendor and majesty and all, all of that and the white horse. But He didn't. He shows up born in a, an animal stall and placed in a feeding trough and then He lives the life of a peasant and gathers around Him a bunch of blue-collar workers and then He, he dies on a cursed tree. This isn't fit our expectations of deliverance of Savior, of Messiah. And so, to them, the idea of Christ crucified, the cross was a complete offense. That is to say, God came and saved His people in a manner that blew the categories of the wise and the religious. He didn't come in a way that they could expect or that they could understand. He came and died on a cross. He didn't come with power. He defied all expectation. And He did it on purpose to frustrate human wisdom, to overturn it and exploit it and show that it was nothing but, as I said, human drivel. That's the cross. That's, that's the centerpiece of our, our faith, is a cross. And it's unfortunate that we've lost the sense of heinousness that that symbol represents because we make it into earrings and we have it on, on crosses and on bumper stickers and the little tattoos on the back of our car or on our shoulders as if it's a wonderful thing. But it wasn't. It wasn't even used as a Christian symbol for the church until after the first century because it was so heinous. People look at it and go, that's disgusting. Or to get the idea, if, if in more modern times, this isn't real modern, but you ever heard of someone being drawn and quartered? In England prior to the 18th or in the 18th century, for it was a, a form of punishment that was extremely cruel, reserved to the worst criminals in England, in which they would take a person, and actually it was drawn in, the idea of being drawn and quartered that is pictured in the last scenes of, of, uh, of Braveheart, the movie, where they will hang a man until he's just about dead. And then they release his body, and so he's in a half-suffocated state. And then they stretch him out on a table, and they begin to disembowel him while he's alive and show him his parts. And just before he goes, they decapitate him. It is one of the most disgusting ways to die I have ever read about. Now, can you imagine someone walking around with a screen print t-shirt of someone being drawn and quartered? You would think, dude, you've got some serious issues. You are demented and in need of a mental institution. You need some clinical psychology, some psychotherapy, because you look like a serial killer having that picture of a man being drawn and quartered, disemboweled, and beheaded on your t-shirt. You say, that's disgusting. Exactly. The cross is the centerpiece of our faith, and it is a brutal form of punishment and, and execution. That's why people, early Christians, couldn't use the cross because it was so, so disgusting. But that's what Paul's saying in this culture. He's saying, I preach the cross. It's like saying, I, I preach drawing and quartering. <laughs> can you imagine? You can understand why they think it's foolish. Because it is precisely there in the cross where a man is slaughtered. 
that God unleashes His power for salvation and forgiveness. And, and it's that ongoing, continued message of preaching the cross. Jesus crucified and raised. It was the center of Paul's message. Absolute foolishness and didn't conform to the expectations of the Jewish people. God came in a way that no one, no one could have expected. He saved us in a way no one expected. So Paul preaches a simple, straightforward message about the cross and Jesus because one, some are going to get it, some aren't. Some are going to think it's foolish. Some experience its power. On the other hand, the cross is that which God uses to lay waste to prideful human wisdom. And then the last argument he uses has to do with election. That is God choosing some and not others. Found in verse 26. And there is in the original a four there that's not translation translated telling me this is the third reason he gives for the straightforward Christ-centered, cross-centered message. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Now this is not, what he's about to say is not ego building for the Corinthians. He says, not many of you were wise by human standards. In other words, he's saying by human standards, a lot of you guys were morons. <laughs> Maybe not quite that severe, but he's saying not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. You, you guys were insignificant. You weren't all that. But then he goes on to say, but God chose. There's the election. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and, this, uh, and, and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Saying, look at yourselves. You're not strong. You're not the brightest people. You don't have family with noble names and reputations, but God chooses those kinds of people. He chooses the weak and He chooses the lowly and the insignificant. Why? To shame the wise, to shame the strong, to shame the lofty. Now you have to note here that He does say, not many of you. That doesn't mean that God does not choose some who are smart or who are influential or who are noble. I mean, Paul would be a notable example of that. But by and large, the people God chooses to be a part of His kingdom and experience the blessings of the cross people who are weak, people who aren't the smartest, people who aren't the strongest, people who don't have a lot of influence. And that right there, again, shows that God works in ways that go contrary to human wisdom. Remember when you were on the schoolyard and we used to pick teams for, could be baseball or flag football, two, ta two captains are selected and there's a nice pool of boys ready to go and they start picking Joe I'll take Sam, I'll take James, I'll take Dave, I'll take Joe, you know, so forth. And, and you always pick, if you're a wise captain, you want to win, you always pick the biggest, the best, and the fastest, right? But then the poor little guy at the end is the last chosen because he's the weakest and probably not the biggest and not the fastest. He's always the last one picked. And that's how we pick. I mean, that's, that's, that's wisdom working its conventional world. God does precisely the opposite. God picks his team, says, I'll pick that guy. He's the smallest, weakest, and not so bright. I'll take him. He works in ways that upset conventional human wisdom. Picked me, picked you. And not because you were strong, not because you were good, not because you were influential, you had a good family name. No, he, he, he chooses the weak things of the world to confound 
and the shame is strong. So you see here, you have this argument after argument after argument. Paul just says, listen, I preach a straightforward message that's about the cross of Jesus. Because it's precisely there at the cross that God is wiping away and he is stripping human pride from everyone. That is, through the foolishness of a man crucified, God saved people. And you look at the people he was crucified for, they're the weak and insignificant. Why? Why? Why would God choose a cross, the foolishness? And the answer and the punchline of the entire chapter is this. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him. God chose this method of the cross because in doing it his way and defying all expectations of philosophers and religious people alike, he would make it so that no one could boast or brag before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. The Christ is the wisdom that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The whole purpose for the cross in God's mind and why Paul commits himself to it in his messages and the church should continue to make it central is because it leaves no one with the ability to boast before God as if I could have gotten it, I could have figured it out. Not in a million years, not in a million lifetimes or weird dreams could we have ever figured this out. Not only could we not boast of figuring out what God was going to do, but he says it is because of him that you are in Christ. We can't even claim to sign on the dotted line that I by myself became a Christian. It was he who gave me the faith to now be in Christ. So I can't even at the end of time say, hey, I did something in the equation. He's going to say, no, that was God in you doing the equation. He still gets the credit. He still gets the glory. That is the fundamental reason for the cross and the preaching of the cross and keeping it central is for God to be glorified amongst his people and get all the credit for doing everything good. So that no one will boast before him. And if anybody does boast, let's boast in what the Lord has done through the cross. See, in the end, Paul is trying to pop the massive prideful ego of these people who were underplaying the cross, which is precisely the way God chose to decimate human pride and arrogance. So that no one would boast. There's really no place for pride and arrogance in God's people in His church. Not at the beginning. That's why when you first come to Christ, you have to come humble and broken, acknowledging that, you know what? I don't understand it all. And by the way, it's not to say that the, the Christianity is not rational. To me, it's the most reasonable and rational explanation for the world as I know it that I've ever found. But my faith isn't based on human rationality. It has to be based on something bigger and stronger, and that's the cross and Jesus. And the reason for that is so that no one can boast. I can never boast. You can never boast. There's no place for pride in God's church goes contrary to the cross, contrary to the purposes and the pleasure of God, and ultimately steals God's glory from Him. And that's what the whole world, the whole creation redemption is about, is that God in the end might receive all the praise, all the glory for everything that He has done. So heaven forbid, brothers and sisters, that we allow pride a place in our lives. It's contrary to the whole cross. Heaven forbid we allow the cross to be off-center, it is the center of life. It is the center of the church. It is the center of the message. 
heaven forbid we ever let it go because in it, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, which is powerful to some and foolish to others, is the power, the wisdom, the righteousness, the holiness, and the redemption of God for us. Amen. Lord God, we pray that you would continue the work of humbling us as a, as a people to recognize that there is nothing that we have that you have not given, no talent, no amount of money, no job, not even our salvation can we claim to be our own. So we just humbly come before you and acknowledge you for your goodness and your love and your grace and want to in humility say you are the one who's done this. Want to humble our pride and acknowledge that your cross and the resurrection is the basis of all of life and our entire future and to live in its light, to savor it, to love it, to hold it close to the chest and never let it go. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for releasing its power in our lives and we pray that we would never, ever, ever be tempted to leave it behind. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.